Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast, or welcome to if this is your first time being here. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. So the past few weeks have drastically changed the landscape of the world. While I am generally an optimist, it's my belief that the next few weeks will continue to be a challenge for many of us. With that in mind, I've been reflecting on what I could do to help. And the Intentional Performers Podcast has given me an amazing gift, a stronger connection to amazing people, and expanded my wisdom and knowledge. It's my hope that you, the listeners, have received that gift as well. So here's my idea to help others during this time of uncertainty. I'm creating a series of panel discussions with past podcast guests to help others learn, grow, and take action to better their lives and careers during this time. It's my hope that the content that we provide will help provide information to you to help navigate some of your toughest challenges right now in a productive manner. All of these conversations will be recorded via Zoom and then uploaded on YouTube. And then we will also upload the audio here so that these conversations and content can be shared with as many people as possible. We will be doing this over a three-week span, and then we'll go back to our original format and style of the podcast. So thank you all for being here, and hopefully you will find these conversations useful in just an uncertain, unknown, and chaotic time that we are all going through. So here is today's panel. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's panel, which is our first one on leading during crisis. I've been fortunate to chat with over 150 remarkable people on my Intentional Performers podcast. And these people have overcome adversity, thought deeply about leadership, and have set up intentional lives for themselves to perform at their best. The coronavirus has created challenges for so many throughout the world. And it is my hope that these panel discussions will help those in need. While everyone on the panel has tremendous expertise, they definitely do. I also want to note that we are all going through this together and it's really unprecedented times. So there may be questions that our panelists don't know the answers to. Certainly, I don't have all the answers and that's okay. Uh, this is designed to simply give you uh, some expertise, some knowledge, and some information so that you can think deeply about how you can handle this challenging time. So with that, I'd like for each of our panelists to introduce themselves, starting with David Cuthbert. Hey, Brian. Thanks a lot for having me today. Uh, first and foremost, it's uh, humbling to be invited to a panel like this to talk about this subject. So thanks for the opportunity. Um, a little bit about my background. Right now, I'm the, uh, the CEO and founder of an organization called Global Imprint, and we work with companies on um, purpose, philanthropy, and uh, strategic um, branding initiatives that bring light to the good work they're doing around the world. Uh, in my past leadership positions, started my career um, after the Naval Academy as 10 years as uh, special operations officer. So dealt with a lot of crisis in the early 2000s in the Middle East and Africa, as you can probably imagine then. Uh, worked through corporate America a bit in a tech startup in the uh, 2006 to 2014 range led through a different crisis there with the financial financial downturn of 2008. And then over the last five years, uh, I led a um, nonprofit organization providing clean water uh, solutions to people around the world before finally starting my, my own company last year. So um, a lot of different leadership opportunities. I've learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. Happy to share any of those things. Uh, with the panel today as it's helpful. Thanks again for the opportunity. Melissa, why don't you go ahead? Sure. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, Brian, thanks for the invitation to be here today with this prestigious group. I really appreciate it. My name is Melissa Hyatt. I'm the police chief in the Baltimore County Police Department. I've been in this position since June of 2019. Um, prior to that, I spent over 20 years in the Baltimore City Police Department. I retired from there as a colonel. My specialty while I was there was dealing with large-scale planned and unplanned events and incidents. Once I retired from there, I spent 14 months as the Vice President for Security for Johns Hopkins Medicine and Johns Hopkins University. Great to be here, thank you. Brendan. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I am the co-founder of Peace Players, an organization that works in divided areas across the globe using basketball as a tool for reconciliation. Uh, we were founded in 2000, so this is going on our 20th year. Most of our work up until about two years ago was 
internationally. We've got year-round programs in Northern Ireland, Israel and the West Bank, South Africa, and Cyprus. And in 2017, we launched a partnership with Nike to bring our learnings back to the United States. So we're now active in uh, five U.S. cities, uh, Baltimore, Chicago, Brooklyn, L.A., and Chicago. Um, you know, we're going through a, uh, a crisis of our own, uh, but one that I think we're, um, we're going to get through. And I'm, I'm really interested in learning from the panel today in terms of, uh, you know, how, uh, how, to, how to adapt, how to use uh, kind of your, your, your people and your network and, uh, and core values really not only to, to kind of get through times of crisis, but also uh, to improve and strengthen. And uh, just a little bit about my own background. I, uh, I played basketball in, in college and had the opportunity to play uh, overseas in Ireland. Uh, my brother had a similar experience and began doing work in Belfast, Northern Ireland, running basketball camps and clinics for Protestant and Catholic kids. And basketball in Northern Ireland is one of the few sports that uh, is perceived as being neutral, where kids from both sides feel okay, that neither side owns it. And it was a great learning experience. And uh, we kind of took this idea of using sports and, and basketball in particular, and it's power to bring people together. Uh, took, it, took it home and, and figured out uh, uh, kind of a plan of action to take it to South Africa, then back to Northern Ireland, and now in, in lots of different places. So uh, really excited to be here. And Mike, why don't you take us home? Hey, um, well, it's, a, it's an honor for me to be on this as well. Um, and with this, this really remarkable group of experience um, that you've assembled here, Brian. So thanks. Um, I uh, um, have served as the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, which is one of the one of how we got to know each other. Um, that is a um, and I held that position for a term from 2016 to 2018. And then I was on the city council of Charlottesville afterward. Um, the experience of of being the public face of the city during the crisis of the Unite the Right rally in August 2017 um, became a, um, you know, it was obviously a major leadership experience for me, um, and it, it, it coincided with a, a career where I'd been in and out of government uh, and politics and the private sector, um, and I had taught classes before that on leadership um, at the University of Virginia. I had a, a PhD in political science and had worked a lot, had written a biography of James Madison. So the, all that kind of mingled while I was in this position. Um, afterward, I started uh, organization, was a project really for 18 months um, with the Anti-Defamation League and a coalition of other partners, um, including the Ford Foundation, the Charles Koch Institute, New America, that was generating learnings from Charlottesville. It was a capacity building project called Communities Overcoming Extremism. And in that, I worked with a bunch of other mayors around the country, some private sector leaders to try and share uh, collective wisdom, generate alliances for this work of dealing with extremism, which surfaced a whole bunch of problems in Charlottesville about our current government's approach to extremism. Um, and in my, but public life is a, it's a day job, it's a part-time job in Virginia. So my day job is I'm on the executive team of a technology company um, located in Central Virginia that has 550 employees um, that uh, creates digital solutions with the largest digital design company in the country and I'm VP and general counsel. Um, so we've been like today dealing with a lot of stuff related to this, these economic waves, but it's great to be here. So Mike, why don't we start with you? And you mentioned getting a PhD and, and studying leadership and writing a book on Madison. What was it like to actually be in it? And what was different about being in a situation that was hot and yeah. dangerous? What was it like to actually be in it? Yeah, well, and I, my publisher would kill me if I didn't mention the fact that I have a book that just came out last week called Cry Havoc. Charlottesville and American Democracy Under Siege. Um, and it's all, my website is michaelsigner.com and it's all, if you just Google Cry Havoc, it'll come up um, with it. the publisher's public affairs. And I go into, uh, it's a first person account of what this was like, um, both with an eye to learning 
uh, for other cities and for the country dealing with extremism if Charlottesville was a microcosm for the country dealing with this incredible level of disruption today, but also there's a leadership story in it. Um, and uh, it was brutal because, you know, just, just like anybody who's been through any kind of crisis in any leadership capacity knows your plan doesn't really survive contact with the enemy, whatever the enemy is. In this case, you know, I go into the book to try to, to take apart this, this kind of perfect firestorm that happened. It took me a long time, even as writing the book, to try and understand the different things that combined. And you had two other white nationalist events in 2017 that preceded this one that became very famous. And the conflicts that happened in both of them and the missteps and the the players and the, the media environment all built on to create this really pent up um, situation for this, this kind of perfect firestorm. But you had a lot of um, tension in these different areas that I, in the book, I talk about them as these different brush fires that, that um, themselves were generating a lot of frustration, um, like the battle about what to do about Confederate statues in Virginia when there was a state law that prohibited doing anything with them. The, um, the the challenge about reconciling freedom of speech and First Amendment, which was uh, with court challenges and permits that had went back to other events earlier in the year. Um, so, you know, what I uh, took away from it, and I certainly made my share of mistakes, there were some, um, there were a lot of things that we did that I'm very proud of. Like we created a, a litigation strategy working with Georgetown University where we sued these 11 right-wing paramilitary groups that invaded the city using a provision in Virginia's constitution that went, went back to the very first constitution in the late 1700s that had never been used before that makes uh, militia groups illegal, basically. So you're, you know, the, 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 the core idea that I had going back way before I, I became a political leader was that democratic resilience is something that matters and that democracy succeeds if it is continually dedicated to building its own resilience. Resilience is something you see in the military context, in the homeland security context, in the private security, in the private sector context. But I was approaching it in kind of the democratic context. And I believe that we, by innovating and by being bold and refusing to be intimidated and, and uh, by pushing our norms and institutions to get ahead of problems, even if problems drag us down for a time that, that the system can um, can can reach higher and higher levels of, of achievement. That that that's what I see when I look back on American history. Um, and, but it was very grueling, playing a role in a system that was under attack by the worst kinds of violence, bigotry, intimidation, social media trolling, and then high levels of dysfunction and mistake at all levels of government, federal, not dealing with extremism and domestic terrorism from white nationalists the state, the way the state police and the local police were interacting, and we had to do a whole study to figure out what actually had happened to go wrong. Um, and and uh, so the, the basic answer is that it was a brutal, frustrating, difficult experience, but what got me through it and what keeps me going today is the idea that even the most agonizing, challenging parts of leadership can be useful if they contribute to learning and to the greater resilience of the greater system. And that's the big idea of the book. And I still, sitting here right now, believe that Charlottesville has contributed to a tremendous amount of progress, whether it's the federal government figuring out the threat of uh, white nationalist domestic terrorism, whether it's legal innovation like this militia lawsuit, whether it's getting the First Amendment balance better. So Governor Northam was able to ban firearms from a potentially hugely violent Second Amendment rally recently from the uh, Capitol grounds in, um, in Richmond because the courts now are allowing more evidence about potential public safety threats at free speech events. And there's still the right balance to strike. He wouldn't have been able to have his decision upheld by the Virginia Supreme Court, but for Charlottesville. So I think there's a lot of change happening, um, not to mention much better strategy by mayors and private sector leaders all around the country who are shifting to a much more proactive stance with a lot of the learnings that we've generated. So um, I, you know, that that's kind of what kept me going through the hardest parts was the sense that this would be useful somehow, that 
if we were transparent and accountable um, and also try to do good things while chaos was unfolding and havoc was unfolding, that that ultimately would 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 kind of reclaim the best parts of a very traumatic uh, experience for, um, for a broader audience. And Brendan, Mike mentions resilience. You're, you work predominantly with high school kids and younger. They are in places of conflict on a day-to-day basis. How do you see resilience playing out for those kids and also the coaches who work in the, with those populations and have to lead those kids during times that require resilience? Yeah, so the way that our organization is structured uh, is a lot of responsibility on the local local teams. So as we hire, we really seek to hire self-accountable people. And, uh, you know, on on the ground every day, the, the kids that are involved in our program, they're working closely with the local coaches, we're working closely with the managing directors, and it's, it's really seen as something and is something that's built inside out rather than outside in. So right off the bat, you have, I think, credibility of the people that are driving the direction of the programming, that are interacting with the kids, uh, are there every day, and they're people that the young people can identify with rather than, you know, importing in a solution. It's really... Uh, organic and homegrown. So the tricky part of that is making sure that, uh, you know, the coaches and the kids and, you know, everybody in our organization and different across different sites are working uh, towards the same goals that are sharing the same values. And so uh, going back to the hiring, in addition to looking at people that are self-accountable, they've really got to buy into what we're doing. And I can tell you, and I know that you've met some of our kids uh, in, in the Middle East and so is Melissa. I mean, you, they, they really walk the walk. They're the ones that are going through this every day and they feel like they are part of the solution and having that kind of freedom and ownership of it rather than it being directed some, you know, somebody from the outside. So I think Brendan, like seeing it up close and personal, Melissa, if you want to jump in here as well, given that you've seen them, what do you think the qualities are of those those kids? Because they're raising their hand and saying, I'm willing to play this sport with people that I might be in conflict with or supposed to be in conflict with, but I'm willing to put myself out there and risk you know, my safety in, in, in a lot of these places. What are some common themes that you see, whether it's kids in Chicago or in Israel or Ireland or South Africa? Are there common qualities that you notice amongst those leaders that are the youth leaders? Well, I think a general misconception is we underrate the ability uh, and strength of young people. Um, and I think you're seeing it more and more with, uh, you know, young people being, you know, kind of taking these bigger stands and being more visible. Some of it is, you know, self-selection. If you're willing to, um, you know, take that step and become part of our program, you kind of know what you're getting into. And that takes a special type of person. And then really key is they, you know, they see kids a couple years older than them modeling it. So we have a program where if you're in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, you're working closely with the ninth and 10th graders. And that's really key because they're seeing kids they look up to that are just a couple years older than them, um, you know, kind of mirroring and mimicking that, that kind of behavior. And it gives them more confidence to be able to do it. So we see over years is it happens a lot quicker because you have these role models and you have people, you know, doing this and kind of taking these big steps and in some cases, you know, taking, taking risks and taking stands. But Hey, if I, if this person who I look up to can do it, so can I. So that kind of pattern uh, gets a lot quicker. I don't really know. Like we, we, we do ask that question a lot. Like, all right, what is it within these kids that enables them to, to do this? Um, and you, you see similarities in different environments. I, I don't know that I have an answer. Um, I can just tell you that, uh, you know, 12-year-olds everywhere can be pretty special. And if you put power um, and, you know, and kind of leadership training uh, and advocacy in their hands, it's pretty incredible what they can do with it. And Melissa, go ahead. You know, the other thing I was going to say, and I see this both with some of the youth that we were exposed to from peace players 
um, as well as really even in my own team in law enforcement, both in this police department and in my previous one, um, one of the things that I, I see, especially um, that I, I think helps propel us forward is people that are really visionary and people that see the current state that, that things are and can envision a different future or can be creative and see that things can look differently. Because whether it's uh, during a crisis or, or during, during a day-to-day, -day, I feel like those are the people that also have the confidence to move things in a different direction. And, you know, even with what I'm dealing with right now and building this police department's first full structure for an incident management team, um, it's taking people that have never done something a different way, but finding the ones that can envision doing it differently. And when I think about, um, you know, a lot of the, the young adults that we've met through Brendan's program, so many of them are just like that. And Melissa, I just want to follow up with you. So you've, you've been in the middle of riots in Baltimore. You've been involved in the city. You said 20 years in the city and, and seen it up close and personal what you also were leading teams and had to manage and lead teams. I think so many people that are going to watch this conversation today are managing their team and maybe they're managing their family or they're managing their, their business or they're managing their store. They're going to watch this and, and they're looking for guidance on managing under times of stress. What advice or thoughts or experiences that you've been through would you think would be helpful for those people? Yeah, with my experience for managing teams both day-to-day -day and during a crisis or chaotic times, it's a few things. And then look, managing teams, there's a lot of complexity, different personalities, and particularly under under pressure at difficult times, it brings out the best and the worst in people, and that's just human nature. But something that, that I am a strong proponent of is, is a lot of planning and a lot of preparation in advance prior to any type of event or incident understanding that once you're in that moment, plans change, circumstances change, but when you have a strong foundation, what brings people comfort, team members comfort during times of crisis is knowing that there's structure, knowing that there's strong leadership, there's structure, and that we will have a, a calm, calculated approach, uh, not making sure that people understand that, that we don't make emotional decisions, that we make decisions based on, on strategy, based on thought, and um, I think that during difficult times, whether it's my police department or someone's organization or a family, having those plans in place, really that provides comfort for people. And David, I would love for you to go into a little more detail on what you did from a special ops standpoint in the military, because mm -hmm. I think people hear Melissa and they say, well, but we weren't prepared for this. No one was prepared for this. This is unprecedented. We've, we've never seen something like this. But when you were in the military, you had to go into places and take actions and work with teams on exactly that. So give everyone a little bit more background on what you did in the military. And then you're welcome to also go into your experience with Wine to Water, where you were going all over mm -hmm. the world to places that actually didn't even have water uh, and, and trying to get water to them. We talk about washing our hands today, but there are communities all over the world that don't even have water. But I'd love for you to share your experience in the military on dealing with when you're not prepared, when you get blindsided um, and, and what your perspective is on that. Yeah. And, and thanks for the the segue there, I think it's an important one from a leadership perspective. And I think, you know, uh, all of us uh, could relate to some of these things. Like we have a plan and I think Mike said it, you know, the plan, as soon as you make contact with the enemy, the plan's gone. And it's how you adapt to that new situation, which is critical to the success. And I'm sure Melissa and Brennan deal with these kinds of things every day as well. But, um, I, you know, there's a saying around military uh, folks, which is, you know, discipline equals freedom. And the discipline really comes in the preparation and the training. And that's really just really being an expert or as well prepared as you possibly can with your core competencies. For us in our special operations community, we were the, essentially the Navy's bomb squad. So we disarmed anything from underwater mines to landmines and IDs and so forth. So we really had to be prepared to deal with a, a lot of unknowns in every single situation. And every situation brought unknowns um but that preparedness is is critically important but the the fact is like things are going to attack you from the side i'm sure mike can 
uh, relate to the fact that, you know, they're, they're handling something and then all of a sudden they get blindsided by whether it be social media trolls or another group of people or what political party, whatever, there's a million things come at them. It's the same in a, in a combat environment. It's the same in developing world environment where you're dealing with something and then all of a sudden something comes from the left or right. And I think the thing that is sustaining from a leadership perspective is not only the preparation and the training, I think Melissa touched on that. It's, it's very important, but I also, also think um, from a value standpoint, you know what you're there to accomplish. Like from a leadership position, you're trying to get to a certain place, right? And so you got to go from here to there and, and you're really trying to achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I think the leader needs to make sure that we maintain the vision on that outcome and what the goal is for this, whether it be resolving a situation peacefully or um, putting a well in in, in East Africa or um, resolving a crisis situation or even managing our businesses through, through this now. We're trying to get through this. And it's really critical from a leadership perspective to be able to keep, I think, our eye on that ball. And when these things come at us from the left and the right, we are able to manage them and not essentially be turning to the left or right and, and being overly distracted or overwhelmed by any one of these variables. Um, we have to handle them and, and be able to, uh, to sort of manage them in, in series. Uh, and, and that's that big picture element, I think, is really, really important. And the military, we called it the fog of war. All these things coming at us made it real difficult to see um, the end of the tunnel. But I think that's the, the challenge that leaders have. And, and to Mike's point, it is a brutal position sometimes because as a leader, sometimes we don't have the luxury of being able to express our own fears in their completeness oh, great at the point. same time. You know, yeah. like we're, we're, we are human beings and concerned also, but we don't really have the luxury always to just be wide open on that. It, and it's, it's sometimes a lonely position for leaders. And I, I say that all the time to folks that I'm mentoring in leadership, like you've got to be prepared to be a little lonely sometimes and find your own outlets that are safe for you so that in that leadership role, you can, can still convey confidence that we can move these things forward in the best way possible. You, uh, let me, can I add a couple of yeah, go follow-ups? Ahead. That, that was really thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been interesting. Um, th there are the certain kinds of crises that develop too, where there ends up being no hero. I mean, there, there are, there are crises that happen where, you know, like a good example, I was on a panel at South by Southwest with Buddy, um, his name Buddy Dyer, the, the former mayor of um, of um, where the Pulse night where the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. And you know, there there are these crises that can happen where they've happened, and then the challenge is kind of putting things together in the future. Then there are crises where the mess is deep and ongoing, and the mess is so murky and gray that there isn't even a convenient um, kind of Hollywood plot that where there's a hero and a villain. And the problem is that that's, that murky gray area is where a lot of action happens. And, you know, in, in this, just in this book, a lot, there's been some, there's been a couple of commentaries recently where people said, I can't believe how honest you were about these, just that, you know, what was happening in city council chambers or the climate of attack or just how messy all these things were. And I, I wanted to be very um, candid about the, the gray area that happened because that's much more real to the unfolding of a crisis. And I think that it's more useful to, it's a, it's a frustrating story to tell. It's a frustrating book to read because there's not really um, many clean or convenient, uh, easy takeaways. The takeaways that come out of it are, are fairly, um complicated and um i just wanted it to but but i think that's more real because anybody you know like like look at all the corporations right now who are dealing with this economic shock that nobody saw coming two and a half weeks ago there's huge amounts of very hard decisions where there's not going to be a lot of happy customers or happy um there's not gonna be a lot of applause on the backside of it it's, it's the moment for hard leadership like david was talking about and what's going to get a lot of people through it is their own compass. It's not going to be the, 
the search for applause. And it's not going to be um, talking about your feelings a lot, unfortunately. And I, I wanted to tell one other very, a very quick anecdote. So there was a lot of scapegoating that happened as kind of the, the crisis unfolded in Charleston. A lot of this was about, well, why didn't the police intervene in street fighting that was happening um, on a on a minute to minute basis and state and local police? Why wouldn't the mayor stop this? Well, the mayor doesn't have that power. We're city manager, former government in in Virginia and in Charlottesville. So the mayor doesn't is not operational. It was it was a it was a mess that kind of got worse and worse as more footage about these failures to stop violence got pumped out on social media in the in the days and weeks afterward. And I really got caught up in this. And there were a lot of people who wanted me to come out and and confront and decry and fight back against the, the kind of scapegoating that was happening. And I talk about this in the book. There was a friend of mine who was um an armory ranger and he told me the expression that you put the village in your rucksack in times that he had learned in Afghanistan was that sometimes you just kind of have to suck it up and bear the the grief and the anguish that is happening and there were these people my wife wanted me to get up and kind of do a Brett Kavanaugh where I would decry and fight back and and the headline would have been mayor fights back against attempts to blame or whatever and you see a lot of that you see that from our president right now you see a lot of a lot of um you know, a lot of a lot of drama that's focused on the one kind of protagonist fighting for themselves. And I just couldn't see doing that. I could I thought there was more important to do long term accountability to get a study that would figure out what had happened to start these healing initiatives down the road to figure out the real things we need to do to fix this, like fix our permitting. Um, and so on, like some real policy things. But to me, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't see kind of a lot of leaders, I think, right now do feel they're like, well, this is a time when everything's about me, me, me. And so you're going to keep on pushing back and make yourself the protagonist in this next set of stories about who won and who lost in this crisis. And it's much more about the crisis and the structure, what, what emerges from it for organizations, I think. So I, you know, I try to be honest about that, that, that dilemma in this book, because I think it's, it's interesting, at the very least, for other people who might be in crisis situations. And Mike and David, I hear you both talking about this sort of internal communication and the external communication. And 100%. Also, there's even one more step. So we have internal for our team. We have external, especially for people like Mike and Melissa, who are broadcasting at times um, through the media. So, but we have external for customers. You see, every one of us has gotten a million emails over the last week from every company that's ever had our email. It's kind of scary to see how many companies have our emails. But um, so we have, we have internal and external, but then you have the inner, which is even more internal than internal for our team. It's also the inner, what are we doing for ourselves to make sure that we're showing up the way we need to, to internally communicate with our team and then externally. And Melissa, I'm curious for you because your job, there's always some sort of crisis going on that you're dealing with. Um, and there's an internal team that you're trying to lead. So I'd love to hear more about what do you do for yourself inner uh, to make sure that you're able to internally share with the team a clear vision that you are prepared, that you are ready. So it's really a two-part question. One is what you do to make sure your inner self is, is where it needs to be. And then the second one is what sort of communication are you telling to your team internally? Forget the external piece for now. Sure. So for me personally, you know, I, I have a strong support system outside of this profession with my family. And, um, you know, there are times that you need to rely on that. And so at times like these, when I'm working, you know, 20 plus hours a day, I rely strongly on that. Um, as for my my internal team, my, my both my top tier leadership team, and, and I'll be honest with you, um, you know, during, during daily operations, there are a lot of things that kept that, that kept to a very small group of people. But during times like these, with a lot of the uncertainty, um, you know, I do I do calls with my team twice a day right now, and um, those those calls are, are pretty large. So it's not just my very top tier of my leadership team. I think that the more transparency that we can have, obviously, you know, not impacting operational security, but just in general, the more transparency that we can have during times like these. Um, really help bring people into the plan of what we're doing and the more people that we inform as we're going along the way, we not only get buy-in from them, but then we, when we need to really start moving forward, um, people are already briefed up on a lot of what we're doing. And 
you know, there, there are times that there are certain pieces that we can't share with everyone, but for my smaller leadership team, you know, my, my top tier, as well as those that are below them, several levels below them, I, I try to bring them in as much as I can instead of excluding them. And, um, you know, there are times that you can't do that, but at least at this moment, based on the type of issue that we're dealing with with this pandemic, it's very appropriate for us to do that. And Brendan, I know that you have hundreds of children that are not yours, but they're all over the world that you feel an obligation and responsible uh, and are, are responsible for. When we were in Israel, there was even a moment where a picture was taken with uh, a kid and, and you were nervous about that picture getting leaked for that kid's safety. And while we were in Israel, also you had a coach whose brother had just gotten you know, had to go to the hospital because of an explosive. And so you are working with people every day, whether they're the kids or the coaches who are in conflict. What sort of communication are you providing them on a daily basis, weekly basis, when things get really hot in an area? How are you thinking about the way that you can communicate from, you're based in Washington, D.C., from this sort of centralized place to get it back to the local uh, areas that are in need? Yeah. So, well, number one, it isn't, I'm not the one that's doing that communication, right? So those are people on the ground. Um, you know, we've changed whether it's right now with Corona or other times of conflict. Um, as Melissa said, you just increase, um, the amount of communication. So now we have a global team, uh, that meets, you know, every morning at eight and we go over the agenda for the day. Uh, and then we issue out at you know, the close of the day, all right, here's what's been done. Here are the key questions that we have uh, for tomorrow's call. So some of the challenges around addressing like immediate, you know, what's going on that day versus how do you, how does that fit into your long-term plan and how does the long, longer-term plan um, get adjusted? I think in my role as the leader, my job is to take some of the heat uh, off to really uh, make sure that my team knows I have their back and do a really, you know, trying to figure out how do we utilize the network that we have to secure resources, information, um, you know, mentorship. And so it can't, I got these things, I think organizations, whether you're talking nonprofits or private sector, um, in times of crisis, they fall apart if it's too much about one person, right? Or if one person is trying to take too much credit, one person takes uh, too much blame or has too much of the decision-making power. So for us, uh, you know, having that diffuse leadership structure, while at the same time, you know, our leadership team, both, you know, here in the States and uh, in, in our global sites, uh, knowing that we have their back and they can, they can trust us. And sometimes the, the challenge is, um, and we have to go by our gut a little bit around where do we take blame? Where do we put a positive spin on things? You know, making sure, you know, the, the more honest we can be, the more transparent you can be, uh, you know, the better you're going to be able to survive. And, and how do all, those th all, all three of those things work together? Yeah, there's a polarity that's showing up right now that I'm hearing. All four of you have talked about taking more on yourself as a leader and that there's some elements that you have to keep within and, and not necessarily show. I think David was the first to sort of say, hey, there's some things that I, I just can't show to my team. But there's also this incredible work by Brene Brown, if you're familiar with her, around vulnerability and how vulnerability with leaders, when we are vulnerable with our team, we get greater buy-in and, and we have a stronger team. And so I'm hearing this friction right now as you all are talking between where do I be transparent and vulnerable and share? And where do I take things on myself to protect my team? And I actually think I could ask this question to any of the four of you. So if one of you wants to take that on, just lift your hand and, and I'll, I'll sort of pass the ball to you. Melissa, why don't you go first? And then I think it's just an interesting conversation for, for all of you to, to think about. And I'm, I'm really curious about it. Well, you know, I just say from my experience, when, when you have the ability to, um, you know, it's important both that transparency as well as people seeing that regardless of your leadership role, there's a person under there. I, I think that that does generate buy-in. But there's also a time when that switch gets flipped 
And when we get into that moment that there are going to be unilateral decisions that get made, um, there, there is a point in time when that switch gets flipped and those that work for you, your, your, your troops, your employees, whoever it is, they know that when we hit that point and when that mode changes, now it's, it's not up for a conference, it's not up for debate. And so I, I think there's a really strong balance, but until we get to that point, at least for me personally, I, I like to be diplomatic. I like to have the input. I like to have all the information. I like to have the naysayers to, to look at our plans and say, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. But once we get to that particular point, then, then it's all business and then it's on and then it changes. David, go ahead. Yeah, Melissa, that was, I mean, spot on as far as I'm concerned. There's there's time for both. Um, and I love Brene Brown's work and it's really important for leaders to consider that too. And I think you can build in our daily interactions with our teams and the things that we do a lot of sort of emotional capital by, by being vulnerable, by letting people know you're a human being and you do have your own fears and concerns and so forth and so on. But times of crises are a little different, right? I mean, that's when people are, are very concerned at uh, some all the way down to just how am I going to pay for my mortgage this month or feed my family and, and these current um, situations. It's okay to acknowledge them and empathize and so forth. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but at the same time, you know, if I look back at sort of my combat um, time, that switch had to go off and like what those people needed in that particular at that particular time was less of my empathy and more of my direction and, and, and like, Hey, this is the course we're going to go and we're going to, this is, we're prepared for this and we've got to go all the while maybe having some of those concerns or ongoing concerns about certain things that, um, but leadership is what and direction is what people needed in that particular time. And I think crises um, situations sometimes heighten that. Um, I do think it's still important to the points you've made earlier is like there is a safe place for us as human beings, as leaders to find our, our safe outlets, but it doesn't need to be wide open all the time. And I think um, leaders and, you know, leaders who are successful, I guess, can nuance that and figure out when, what is needed in this particular situation. Uh, is this a time for me to be wide, wide open and vulnerable or be a little bit more directive and, and not authoritarian? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about like establishing a plan and, and just being a bit more, um, a bit more direct maybe in the way that, 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 that is, uh, that is presented, but to counter this a little bit, it's not really a counter, but I think it's, it's an important point to be made. I think one mistake we as leaders and I, I can attest to this mistake now we do make in these times is feeling like the entire situation is our personal responsibility. And so we carry that almost to a fault and it really can be very detrimental to ourselves as human beings and our health and so forth, but it can actually be a huge detriment to our leadership as well, because the team might need more direction or more specificity in that particular time. But they also want to feel empowered. And I think Brennan's model, as he talked about empowering even all the way down to 12 year olds, which is really incredible lessons for them. But I think as much as we can bring people in and empower them to do their jobs also and, and leverage their expertise and their core competence, it'll actually help them overcome the fears that they have and feel like I have something to contribute in this moment. So the leader has to understand the nuance of how vulnerable and transparent to be in a given situation but at the same time, not carry the whole thing by ourselves and empower the people around us. And I think as a leader, it helps us feel like it's not ours to carry by ourselves, but we really do have this team around us. That's the whole point of the team to begin with. I don't know why leaders all of a sudden, a lot of times in those situations, make the whole team about themselves. It's, it's completely unproductive. But if we can share that responsibility and empower people with, this is what we need you to do, we need you to do it now. Um, the, the opportunity for success is so much greater on the back end. Mike, go ahead. And then I'll go to Brian. Yeah, I, great comments. I love this discussion. Um, one other thing I wanted to add was um, for any public-facing organization, um, social media and the media climate and the way that people interact with and form their opinions and make demands has become obviously just even the last 10 years increasingly important. And um, it can introduce a real 
distortion effect and a kind of false climate of reality. And I, I talk about this a, a lot in the book because I just think it was so relevant to consider how these things can unfold. Um, and the fact is that social media a lot of time does become, it does take on a life of its own, literally. So people will organize major events on Facebook and they will, their relationships to each other or to authority figures or to brands through these platforms become as important or more important than they were through whatever the legacy systems were. And amid all this, I think perspective becomes even more important because the social media will create its own cadence and its own intensity and its own, obviously we've learned um, that there can be fake news or lies there and parsing through all that takes time and it takes checks and balances. And there's this, there's a metaphor. I think I talked about it with you, Brian, on our interview about a, um, you know, a machine with different gears. So the, the, Small gears, the ones that are moving the most quickly, but that have the less force, and the large ones, the ones that move more slowly, but have more force. And I kept on thinking about that metaphor during a lot of the most insane things that were happening during this this year, where, you know, what are you supposed to do if you get a blizzard of 500 emails and calls from some angry constituent group, or there was this, there was this national celebrity uh, journalist named Sean King who wanted the beating of a young black man um, by these you know, neo-Nazis that happened in a parking garage near the Charlottesville Police Department. It was absolutely outrageous. If you saw the video, you wanted something done yesterday. But to investigate and prosecute this, and I was getting you know, thousands of emails about this, the prosecutors in Charlottesville are a separate constitutional office. I don't, they're separately elected for a real reason. Prosecuting and investigating a crime like that takes time. They all ultimately, most of them were successfully found, prosecuted. Social media actually played a useful role in that by, by sort of highlighting the search for these people and their faces. But the, you know, in a leadership position, you needed to, to be mindful and have perspective that for a prosecution to be done right, this could take a year. And it did take a year. And for the careful fact finding by the proper investigators in the criminal justice system, Similarly, you know, when there's fake news out there or lies, you have to figure out how to push back where appropriate. You have to figure out where to minimize or disengage where appropriate and somehow try to keep all this in perspective while you keep the bigger, more important gears moving, you know, turning them as best as you can. And I don't think there's any perfect answer on it, but I think just being having <laughs> being able to keep perspective on the small stuff and the big stuff and think about time as a factor in all this um, it does become very important. Brendan, what's your perspective on that? I mean, agree with all the uh, all the panelists. I think it's really important um, the kind of mindset you have, um, much more so than the tactics or the immediate behavior. But kind of where are you coming from? Are you looking at yourself? Are you retreating? Are you looking to blame others? Or you know, are you seeking to understand the challenges and obstacles and needs that others face for us, whether that's our, our staff, our kids, our partners, our funders. And if you come at, especially in crisis, but you have to have this, I mean, you know, I think a consistent mindset all the time, but if you come at, all right, what do they need? How can we be most helpful to them? What are the, you know, the barriers they face rather than focusing on what, what I need as an individual um, you're going to be number one, a lot more successful. You're going to gain trust and respect, and it's going to be a much less transactional, uh, approach and more about like the long-term relationship building. And for us to weather what's happening now and in past crises, having that trust in those relationships really well established because that's how we thought and that's how we acted, um, has been really important. Um, you know, to overcoming uh, tough situations. And you're really talking about servant leadership and the idea of if you're a leader, you're supposed to be in service and be influencing your team and the, the people that you're working for. And so it's interesting to hear your perspective on, on that, Brendan. Melissa, you said something earlier that really stuck with me, which was around creativity and that we need to have a vision and be creative and adaptable, but we, we really need to think about how we can be creative during these times. So 
as we're recording this, we're in it, right? Like everybody's in it. This, th- what's different about this and previous crisis, when it's Charlottesville, yes, Mike, I was actually in Israel with Brendan when Charlottesville was going on and we're in Israel feeling safer than perhaps our, yeah. our, you did in Charlottesville, which is kind of a crazy juxtaposition. But I want to go to Melissa here. You, you talk about creativity. Well, we're in it right now. So it's awesome to hear all your perspectives and what you learned from all your experiences. But I'm curious what you're doing right now that is creative, that is visionary, that is in service to the people on your team. And perhaps give us an idea of what the last week has looked like and how you're trying to be creative and a visionary. And I'd love to maybe end on that note. And Melissa, maybe you can share your perspective. Then we can go to David, Mike, and Brendan. Uh, So Melissa, give us your perspective on what are you doing real time to try to be in service to your team in a creative way? So I'll start by looking back to April of 2015 when I was in the middle of the unrest in Baltimore City. And there were a lot of challenges we faced. There were a tremendous number of lessons that we learned. And really one of the biggest things at the end of it is that we focus on the health and welfare of our personnel did not take the level of precedence that, that it needed to. And, um, you know, now being in a position where we are dealing with a crisis, but where we're doing a lot of the preparation in advance. Um, you know, just this morning, part of my, my structure, we, we launched a, a wellness grant to our structure, which is something that had it not been for, for frankly, um, some of our failures in leadership previously, um, those wouldn't be things that would be front of mind. But when we talk about creativity and somebody, you know, a couple of other people have spoken about empowering other people. You know, whoever the, the leader needs to have a vision and needs to impress that vision so people understand that commander's intent. But then it's really critical to empower other people in either leadership roles or leaders to be, to then take that vision, use their creativity, not look at anything as impossible, and then make plans to move forward that way. Um, one of the, the best books that I ever read was called Failures of the Imagination. And it's one of those things that those that are the most prepared are the ones that, that look at anything that could possibly happen and, and planning, you know, don't look at things and don't listen to ideas and say that could never happen or why are you, why are you wasting time on that? But really consider anything that's possible. And, and so that's something I really encourage my team to do. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll obviously we'll see how history is written. But, you know, a lot of it for me is really just about lessons learned, both good and bad, not reinventing the wheel, talking to peers um, in other jurisdictions who've had similar types of experiences and um, doing the, the best that we can with that information. Before we go to David, I'm just curious about the wellness initiative. What does that look like? What, what sort of things are you doing to try to keep your people well? So, um, you know, they're going to be reporting back to me in a couple of hours, but, but a lot of it is, is proactive outreach not waiting until we're at the point that our folks are exhausted and are drained. You know, obviously we're all concerned. All of our officers are out there on the front lines every day, but yet they have concerns about their own families, just like I do. Um, you know, I'm not having any contact with my own family right now because I don't want to make them sick. I don't want to put them at risk. So I, I recognize the fact that we're asking them to do this really difficult job every day, but they have their own concerns as well, and we have to acknowledge that. We have to see what resources they need. We have to support them because they, you know, our, our people, and, and you've all said it in one way or the other, our people are our most valuable asset and we have to take care of them and they need to know that they matter. David, give us your perspective on what you're doing uh, during this time to, to be creative and to be vision, vision focused. Yeah, thanks, Brian. And I just want to thank and commend Melissa for all her comments there. I think really important. First and foremost right now, I think from a leadership perspective is even though my my team is different and smaller now and, and so forth, first and foremost is making sure as an organization we are meeting the basic needs of the team that we have and making sure people feel as safe and secure even in a corporate realm as possible with as much uncertainty in the market as there is right now. But from an organizational standpoint, um, we have to pivot. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that what was important to people literally three weeks ago is not important to them anymore, or they just don't have the bandwidth or the resources to be thinking about things in the same way as they contemplate you know, downsizing their organizations or changing things altogether or asking for uh, debt forgiveness or applying for new programs. So we need to find out what's important to our 
our clients right now, where, what are their new needs in this, in this dynamic and how do we provide without throwing everything away that we've done? Cause I think it's, it's still very relevant and we're actually trying to help companies that are actually thriving in this market to address some of the needs that the, uh, that society and communities have. So there's a place we can, we can play there, but it is a pivot from our, our general messaging and our, our general approach. So you know, we're looking for companies and trying to help companies who are, you know, in those sectors that are finding themselves in a maybe a period of abundance and helping them align some of the initiatives where they can actually make investments in community-based programs that directly help people's lives right now. Um, so that's that's a pivot we've made, and I think we just have as leaders we have to understand what the current culture is, what is needed in today's current culture. It is drastically shifted in just a matter of days, and then how do we meet that need um, while still depending upon our core competencies and the things that we do well. You know, I think people are very dynamic, teams are very dynamic, and we can make adjustments to um, to still provide our best selves and our, our, our best services in, a, in a, an environment that's changing if we're, if we're creative about it, like Melissa said. Thanks, David. Mike? Um, well, I am not um, in public office right now, so, um, I'm in the private sector and have a and have this book out. So I'm 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 mindful of my of my limitations compared to somebody like Melissa who's directly on the front lines dealing with this. Um, I have been thinking about well, you know, as an act when you've been in leadership positions anyway, they become part of you and the new the fabric of your life as you go to your different chapters. And so, um, you know, it was interesting last Thursday as. As a former mayor of Charlottesville, I was on the, the emergency manager for the city called me and we've got a three count, a three locality approach for the formal emergency management, you know, apparatus that's set up with the city and the county and the university. And she said, we need help setting up a virtual, um, an app and a, some kind of digital solution that will plug volunteers in and organizations with the needs and the opportunities they have. And there's nothing formally set up like that. And my, my day job where I, where I work, we do that sort of thing. And then it, so I spent a couple hours connecting all these dots and trying to figure out and, and have a call set up and talking to the CEO and figure out, could we put a team on this? And it, it just kind of came from being, you know, somebody in civil society now, but who has this background with, with some experience and these relationships and trying to figure out, well, how do we all in this new position I'm in, how do, how do I innovate and try and be useful? Um, and, uh, it'll be interesting, you know, with this, with this book, without being craven or opportunistic about it, neither of which I want to be there, there is relevance for the story that, that I, that, that I try to explore about building up this immune system of democracy. It's like literally in, in a whole bunch of places. And this interview I did with the head of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, for this podcast, Overcoming Extremism, it, it focused in large part on the role that these large organizations can play in boosting democratic resilience because they're fighting against these viruses that have been with democracy forever, like anti-Semitism or extremism or bigotry or instability or demagogues. And so I'm, I'm very interested in, in the relevance of all the work that we're doing to, to boosting the immune system of anybody politic now. And it turns out that we needed, I think a different approach from our government to being in the most forward posture against this threat. I mean, that goes to the National Security Council or surveillance testing, but there's deeper ideas that we're gonna need developed about how do we be in the absolutely most robust place we can be to not be vulnerable to viruses of any kind. So I, anyway, that that's a little bit of where my mind has been um, in the last couple of days. Um, so, you know, but it's nowhere near as vital as, as what you guys are doing. And, and Brendan, how about you? How have you guys been creative? So we're looking at two, two main ways. Uh, one is integrating technology into our program uh, to a much greater degree. So, you know, for being an organization that thrives on face-to-face -face contact, kids playing sports together on a regular basis, obviously that's all been, been halted. Um, but the programming is, is going to continue. And how do we um, develop platforms where kids can 
stay connected with one another and connect in different ways to stay physically active, um, to continue to receive, you know, mentorship. And, you know, we're dealing with some of the neediest populations we're going to suffer the most here. So how do we use their connection to our program, uh, coaches, the mentors, the different types of leadership programming that, that most of it up until now has been, you know, face to face. Um, how do we quickly adapt to provide, uh, to those kids? And then secondly, I think it's become even more apparent, the lack of, uh, of leadership uh, existing around the globe, both, you know, particularly in the political realm, but also, um, you know, in the, in, in, in the public, other private, private sectors. And so uh, doubling down on, you know, we've got this pretty uh, incredible cohort of young people in their 20s that have been through our program, that are serving as coaches and, um, you know, have, have this really, uh, I think great potential as leaders. So how do we during, you know, during this time continue to provide and provide even more leadership training and also opportunities for them to lead right now and support them, uh, and support them to do so. Uh, so those are the, the kind of the two, uh, kind of, I would say one is a pivot in terms of, uh, that kind of integrating technology, uh, and virtual programming. And the second is a doubling down in terms of our leadership at work with our, our graduates. Fantastic. So I just want to thank all four of you for your service, for your leadership, and then for your willingness to come on here and share with the world during a crisis. I want to give each of you 10 seconds, 15 seconds, just to promote something that you're passionate about. Melissa, I know you jump into cold waters when uh, maybe you shouldn't be, and that's something that you're passionate about. So feel free to promote that. And each of you just take like five, 10 seconds. Cause I know many of you have to go back to work and, and, and lead people. So Melissa, why don't you go first and then we'll go to David, Mike, and we'll end with Brendan. Well, thanks for ending this on such a positive note for such a serious topic. Um, so I'm a four time super plunger for special Olympics, which means uh, every winter I jump into the water 24 times in 24 hours in the Chesapeake Bay and uh, raise $10,000 every year for special Olympics. So uh, that's, that's my plug. It's a great organization and um, I'll be doing it again next year for the fifth year. And David, why don't you uh, promote whatever you, you would like? Yeah, thanks, Brian. First of all, just nonprofits in general. I've been in, around that sector for a while now. A lot of them are under a lot of pressure. So, you know, everybody's under a lot of pressure, but nonprofits provide such an important service to the basics of our community in so many areas around the world. So if anybody as nonprofits say support and they can continue to support them, I would say this is the time to, to help. Uh, the two that I would like to highlight, Wine to Water, that I've been a part of for a long time, doing incredible work in the hygiene area, hand washing, the stuff that really does help prevent the spread of disease. And the other one I'm working with pretty closely right now is Team Rubicon. They've got an army of veteran volunteers out there across the country that uh, is really stepping up and helping in some of the basic need areas uh, around the nation. So uh, those two nonprofits, I think, are just doing fantastic work right now. There's many more, but they're the two I'll mention in a few seconds here. Thanks for the opportunity. Mike, go ahead. Um, I, thank you again. I, I would say that anybody looking to make a difference very um, effectively in their community should look to their local community foundation. Most communities in the country have them. And Charlottesville, the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation, um, they tend to work in a very like evidence-based way on local projects. And a lot of them are setting up relief funds right now, like for people in the restaurant industry who are affected or people who have healthcare needs. Um, and the, the final thing that I will say is just, um, this is kind of a different thing that you're asking, but I, I, have a, I have a strange feeling that this is going to be a time when we're going to get different and deeper levels of connection that we might not have had, um, ironically. And I would just advise everybody to be alert and uh, mindful to those opportunities, whether it's somebody in your family or your kids or your loved ones or uh, friends. And we're going to do it through different ways. The um, but it's it's going to I think in a way be it's going to generate as much connection as it might be might be taking apart right now brendan why don't you uh finish up sure. well since a lot of the listeners have some some time to spend at home and a lot of people have talked about their own personal improvement and, and books i've got two books uh to talk about one is brand new one's been around a while the first one is on dangerous love by chad ford and chad uh 
I won't quote his bio, but he's been uh, as important as anybody in terms of helping us to develop the kind of mindset uh, and local ownership that I, that I referred to. Uh, and he's got a book that kind of maps that out and uh, a partnership with a group called Arbringer uh, that has really worked with us very close for the last 10 years to, um, to, to build out how we communicate and the curriculum we develop with our kids and how we train our coaches. So on Dangerous Love by Chad Ford. And the other one by a person uh, that Brian, you and Melissa are both familiar with, Ron Shapiro, who's been as important anybody an organization who I've learned more from than anybody, uh, the power of nice, uh, a really awesome tool on how to negotiate in times of crisis. So I just want to thank all of you again for your time. Appreciate it. I'll also put everything that you all are up to in, in the notes as well. So thank you all for your time and, and uh, thanks for everyone for tuning in and listening. Thanks, bro. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.